As we uh, begin this morning, I want to read um, James chapter 1 to set the stage for the verses that we're going to be looking at in chapter 2. So we're going to be specifically looking at James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, and we'll read them in a couple of minutes. But let's start in James chapter 1. Let me read this whole chapter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's stop and pray. Father, as you speak to us through your word this morning, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Help us to understand the things that you would have for us. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you care about the people that God cares about? Uh, It's not an an accusatory question at all, and rather one we all need to ask ourselves to ensure that we're growing in Christ-likeness. 
Because let's face it, most of us care first and foremost for ourselves and our own interests. But in our study of 1 Corinthians, we saw in 1 Corinthians 10.24 that as Christians, we are called to let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And Paul writes the same to the Philippians when he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Well, last week as we began this sort of short series looking at the true nature of faith from the epistle of James, we saw that one of the one of the theses, uh, themes of James's letter is that while we are not justified by doing good works, the good works that we do as Christians give credence to our justification. So, so let me put it this way. Our good deeds prove to the world that we actually truly believe what we say we believe. See, James is pointing out to us that mature Christianity looks like this. And all through the first chapter that we just read there, he speaks to the situations that his readers find themselves in. He lays out tests for them. Paul will write later in 2 Corinthians, he will say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And James gives his readers some tests to do just that. And so he lays out in the first chapter really three tests of our faith. So let me just give you them really quickly because I want it to be the background for what we're going to talk about here in a moment. Verses 2 through 12 of James chapter 1 is a, a test of our response to trials. He says true believers are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So if you rejoice in God through your various trials, you will remain steadfast in your faith in God. I'm reminded as we think of that that concept, I'm reminded of the book of Job. Think of his initial response to losing nearly everything, including his own children. Job chapter 1 finishes up by saying this, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, Job struggles later in the book, and he had to deal with God's rebuke near the end of the book of Job's, and it was a a pretty harsh and long rebuke, but he never cursed God so that he could die. His steadfastness may have wavered a bit, but in the end, he died, it says, an old man full of days, and he died with the Lord's blessing. Well, the second test of our faith is our response to temptation. That's verses 13 to 18 of the first chapter. When you're struggling and going through those trials, you will be tempted, I'm sure, to shake your fist and be angry at God. You will be tempted to curse God and die. But we are to remember that that giving in to temptation is life-taking. Whereas God is 
life-giving, right? Remember in chapter 1, verse 18 that I read, he, he says this, of his own will, he brought us forth, he birthed us by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Our God is, is life-giving. In the beginning in verse 19, and really extending all the way through the end of chapter 2, is this third test of our faith. And this is what we're going to talk about t- today. And really, Last week and next week as well, Lord willing, it's a test of obedience. It's about doing the word. Do you understand that this is what he was talking about in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1? Listen to that again. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We hear the word and there has to be a heart change. This is what repentance is. And so whether that change manifests itself by bridling our tongues or going out and caring for widows and orphans, there is a change. That's repentance. And so on the more progressive side of Christianity, um, they would often zero in on the good works of those verses, right? Visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. But often we'll leave out the part that says, keep oneself unstained from the world. I don't want to harp on this, but I'm going to mention it just today. That dove behind me is the logo for a church that just in the last, a a denomination, not just a church, that just in the last couple of weeks has officially changed their position on the LGBTQ movement, allowing, um, and to be open and affirming, allowing ordination and marriage and all of that. They love to do the good works, but they're not keeping themselves unstained from the world. But let's be honest, we also don't do a great job of keeping ourselves unstained from the world. We have our own worldly sins that stain us. But when we hear the word of God, when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond to it in faith, there is a change, there is repentance. And when we repent and begin to apply God's word to our lives, instead of just listening to it, we actually start doing it We begin to start caring about the things that God cares about, like holiness and obedience. We begin to care for the people that God cares for, for the weak and the vulnerable, for the insignificant, for orphans and widows. We stop showing partiality toward the rich because we realize that God has shown no partiality toward us. We love our neighbor as ourselves because mercy triumphs over judgment. A few years ago, in the, the pre-pandemic era of human history, there was an Ebola outbreak in Africa, actually in three West African nations, the nations of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. You might remember the story. There were a couple of American medical missionaries with Samaritan's Purse. A doctor, his name was Kent Brantley, and a nurse, her name was Nancy Wrightbull. They made the news because when all of the other health organizations pulled out of the area because it was dangerous, they stayed. And each of them 
contracted Ebola, the deadly disease. Listen to this quote from the Daily Beast, which is not at all a Christian website. It says this, No images from combat zones depict greater courage than do photographs of Brantley and his team in the hot zone, tending a patient in the midst of horrific suffering that they themselves were risking. Dr. Brantley is a man of deep faith, and he was proving himself to be a Christian such as Christ would cherish, someone practicing that greatest love, Any religion that values life would embrace this doctor's scripture in action, his gospel of goodness. As Christians, we are to care for the most vulnerable, the weak, the least of these. The world is watching. What does it look like to have faith? It looks like caring about the people that God cares about. And we remember that faith without works is dead. This doctor's faith is also displayed in his love, not just for the least of these, but also for his fellow believers. Listen to this quote from a different article in that same uh, secular news website. says this, What Brantley did was what Jesus also would have done after the doctor's worst fears became real and he was infected along with his fellow health worker. Only one dose of an experimental serum was available, and Brantley insisted that it be given to his colleague, Nancy Reitbull. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Faith without works is dead. Martin Luther, he once wrote a letter entitled, whether one should flee from a deadly plague. He wrote it to his friend, the Reverend Dr. Johann Hess. He was a pastor in the city of Breslau. Included in that letter is this quote. When asked what to do when a deadly plague comes into the town and under his ministry, he says, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. Now let's read James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And as I said, we're going to focus primarily here on verses 18 to 20 for the rest of our time this morning. So James 2, verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, for the first part of his argument, uh, we saw this last week, James gives a, a hypothetical example of a fellow believer coming into the assembly, coming into the church with a great need. And the congregation sees, acknowledges the need, and then wishes them well without meeting that need. He says, this is faith without works. What good is that? In these verses, he, he's making the same argument. He says, well, faith without works is useless. And then he backs it up with three truths about the nature of saving faith. Three truths about the nature of saving faith. Here's the first one. True faith cannot be separated from works. True faith cannot be separated from works. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It, it's almost like James is having a one-sided argument here. This type of writing, this sort of someone says and then he shoots it down, it's called a diatribe. James is taking their position, he's shooting it down, he's, he's proving it wrong. And, and this verse, especially where the quotes are, those are unique in English, there are no quotes in Greek, um, and so it's a notoriously difficult passage to translate because of that punctuation. Uh, so we're not really sure where the quotes actually stops, but nevertheless, his argument is, you have faith and I have works. That's the argument of the others. It shows us that, that, that they thought that these two things, faith and works, were separate entities, as if they were separate spiritual gifts. You can remember from a couple of weeks ago in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 9 actually does say that faith is a gift. And the word that's translated for works, or, or some versions might say deeds there, it's a generic term, and, and it includes all kinds of things, like, like gifts of service. Uh, it includes giving. It includes exhortation and, and even leadership. So here's what the opposing argument is. It goes like this. See if this sounds familiar. I'm a Christian, but I can't help you. That's not my spiritual gift. Certainly, I can't be expected to be active outside of my gifting. Have you ever heard people say something like that? I can't serve in the nursery. That's not my spiritual gift. I don't know that it's anybody's spiritual gift, by the way. It's something you just have to do. Although there are a couple of ladies in here who are especially gifted with the kids. It could be any other area of service. But these two things, this faith and works, they're not, they're not options for a Christian to choose. They, they actually can't be separated. You can't have one without the other. Only where good works are evident is saving faith present. 
So James goes on with this argument and he says, show me your faith apart from your works. How do you do that? How do you show somebody your faith apart from your works without showing them good works? You show them some kind of diploma, a certificate of baptism? How do you show somebody your faith without showing them what you've done? When you go to the doctor, and I don't know why, but it seems like every doctor does this, they put their school of medicine diploma on the wall somewhere in their office. Do you ever look at them? I mean, really look to see if it's real. Do you ever look into the credentials, the educational credentials of your doctor? Maybe, I'm sure some of you do. It never crosses my mind. I just go where Chris tells me to go, but as infrequently as possible. But really what we want from our doctors is proof that they know how to practice medicine, right? Same thing with a dentist or a mechanic. Anybody can print a diploma, frame it, put it on a wall, but I, I want to know if you can do it. I, I want to see that your claims can be substantiated, right? Show me your faith apart from your works, James says. This is impossible. It is only through our works, only through our good deeds that we are able to demonstrate our faith. Anybody can go to church. Show me a love for the brethren. Show me a desire for God and his word. Show me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. If someone claims faith yet does not back up that claim with good works, that really can't even be compared to a claim of faith that is, that is accompanied by compassionate, caring acts of mercy and love, for example. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I said uh, a minute ago that, that works here is kind of a generic term for, for some of the spiritual gifts, particularly those gifts of service and, and helping others, of, of caring for one another. And, and what we need to remember is that when we talk about gifts or performing good deeds, we need to remember that, that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 falls in the middle of Paul's instructions concerning spiritual gifts. Now, I know that, that we actually haven't gotten to chapter 13 yet in our study of 1 Corinthians, but you know what that chapter is. We read it at every wedding. I'm guessing nearly every wedding you've ever been to, they read at least part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I, I did it myself last weekend. Um, yet we also know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has nothing to do with romantic love. But I firmly believe that it has everything to do with the relationship of faith and works for us as Christians. Remember, Jesus commands to love one another so that the world will know that we are his disciples. So jump over there to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read the whole chapter. Really getting a bonus today. This is the third full chapter that I've read. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I shall know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Do you see the progression in that chapter? Do you see the progression as we think through these things from James and Paul's writings? If you truly have faith, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. And if you truly love God and love your neighbor, you will demonstrate that love by showing mercy, by meeting needs, by having compassion on them, by demonstrating your faith in Christ through your actions. Performing good deeds is not what saves you. Only faith does that. But those good deeds accompany our faith, and they must be manifest in love. See, James's point is this. The claim of faith is empty where there is no action. And this is where we need to be specific, right? When we talk about faith, we are talking about, as Hebrews 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. But what are the things that our hope is in? What is it that we hold to as convictions? We would have to say that it is the promises of God, specifically his promise of redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 reminds us of this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. He provides redemption. He provides deliverance. He provides reconciliation. He provides justification. He provides salvation. He provides a way of escape. He will wipe away every tear. It is Christ who has defeated sin and death, and it is with him that we will spend an eternity. Our faith, our Our assurance, our conviction is the fulfillment of God's promises of redemption of a people for his own possession through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus showed up in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and Mark tells us, Mark records his first words. They're not his first words, but his first words in Mark Jesus said, repent and believe. This is what he was calling us to believe in, to trust in the promises of God. And if we say that we have faith in the promises of God, 
then we will perform deeds in keeping with repentance. That's what Acts 26 verse 20 says. And those deeds will be clothed in love. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. You know what? If we don't have works along with our faith, then we are no better than demons who are cursed by God. Mere unbelief is insufficient, or mere belief, rather, is insufficient for salvation. Mere belief is insufficient for salvation. This is the second truth about the nature of salvation that James kind of dishes out on us here, is that mere belief is insufficient for salvation. So let me explain. Look at verse 19. James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Look at what James is doing there. He's equating faith without works with a mere assent to the truth about God's existence. This is the kind of faith that says simply, oh, oh yeah, I, I believe in God, but it, but it discards obedience to his word. It discards uh, um, conforming to the image of Christ. Yeah, I believe in God. So in practical terms, these are those who claim to be Christians and don't ever act like, don't ever act Christianly. They don't ever go to church. They don't ever love one another. They claim to be Christians. They don't love other Christians. They believe in God and are not obedient to his word. This kind of faith has nothing to show for itself. It has no personal trust and hope in the promises of God. It does not pursue godly wisdom. This kind of faith is hypocrisy. Look at his words. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. This is a reference to the Old Testament Shema. The Jews recited this every day, and it begins like this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This confession would be uh, kind of akin to, to modern-day Christians proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. James says, maybe a little sarcastically, you believe that? You say that? Well done. Your faith is on the same level as the demons. His problem is that belief, reciting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, saying, I believe in God, if it doesn't go beyond the verbal to touch your heart, to change your life, if your, if your study of God, if your understanding of Jesus, your theology doesn't change you, then you have the same type of faith that the demons have, Paul, or James says. And this is a statement, this verse is a statement that actually is meant to startle his readers. It's meant to, it's meant to take us back. And so I want to look at three quick, a quick look at three aspects of demonic faith. So if you're taking notes, this is point number two, sub-point number one. Demonic faith, its knowledge does not transform. Consider this for just a minute. Satan, first of all, is real. Uh, he's not everywhere. He does not have the attributes of God. Satan is monotheistic. Satan believes that there is one God 
and that his name is Yahweh. I mentioned Job earlier. Um, well, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In other words, Satan has been in the presence of the Most High God. He knows the truth. We don't have time today to develop this fully, but, but in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever, whenever Jesus would confront a demon, they knew who he was. Even if the people around him didn't quite grasp or understand the concept of, of Jesus being the Son of God, the Son of Man, the demons knew exactly who he was. They believed that he was the Son of God. They feared his coming eternal judgment. And they even believe in the existence of a place of eternal torment. Yet for them there was no transformation. Demons believe right and accurate things about God. They believe the truth about Jesus Christ. They understand the resurrection. Now in their case, they cannot be transformed. But don't lose the point. James is saying that a faith without transformation is no better than the type of knowledge of God a demon has. Knowledge that does not transform. And so the second aspect of this demonic faith is that it, it does not love Jesus. Demonic faith fears Jesus' judgment. It fears hell. The demons shudder from fear when they encounter the truth of God, but they don't love Jesus. Demons can match our theology point by point, maybe even if they wanted to, correct us where we get things wrong. But they're over... They're overwhelmed by the truth of doctrine, and yet they remain condemned. I want to real quickly compare um, the demon's response to Christ with, with Thomas's response to the risen Christ. So in Mark 1, verse 24, a demon says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Do you remember... Do you remember Thomas's response to seeing the resurrected Christ? John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas proclaims, My Lord and my God. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, my Lord and my God. They're both saying the same thing, right? They're both correct. But Thomas loved Jesus. The demon was completely afraid. He was completely afraid of Jesus' destruction, his judgment. He had no love for him whatsoever. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A faith that does not love Jesus is a demonic faith. And the third aspect of demonic faith is that it is rebellious and not repentant. I'm going to read just a few select verses from Luke chapter 8, another interaction. Luke chapter 8, verse 28, a demon says this, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Down in verses 30 to 33 of Luke 8, we read this, Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. 
Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now listen to verses 38 and 39. This is the response of the man, that man who had been possessed. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The demons they continued their destruction. That herd of pigs, pigs rushed down the hill, off the cliff, into, the, into destruction. But the man desired to be with Christ. He submitted to his will, and he proclaimed the good news. He proclaimed all that Jesus had done for him. Mere belief is insufficient for salvation it is akin to a demonic faith, which is condemning. And then if, if this wasn't hard enough, James lays out a third truth about the nature of salvation, and he does, it in a, he does it in a negative way to make his point. He says, let me say it in a positive way, kinda, the fool believes that faith without works is useful. Well, look at what he says in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, this verse actually flows better with the rest of the chapter. It sets up what he's about to say, and we'll get into that next week, Lord willing. But even by itself, that one verse is, is very telling. It, it exposes the nature of true saving faith. And the word for foolish there, it actually means empty. It's a lack of understanding because of stubbornness and a, a hard-hearted ignorance. If you think that you can, you can simply say that you are a believer, that you have faith and never act out your faith, never do the word, the Bible calls you foolish. I'm not calling you foolish. The Bible calls you foolish. Of course, I, I have to agree with the Bible Fools think that their alleged faith is good enough. Fools think that their alleged faith is good enough, is useful for salvation. The problem is that there's no such thing as an inactive faith. If you claim that such a faith exists, you know, I'm, uh, I used to go to church. I'm just backslidden. I've been backslidden for the last several decades. The Bible calls that person a fool, and it calls your faith bogus and self-deceptive. Faith apart from works is useless. Faith without works is dead. Now let me close with this. In Paul's instructions to Timothy in his first letter, he gives specific instructions to Pastor Timothy. And at the end of chapter 4, as he kind of shotgun blasts a bunch of instructions, he says this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. He tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set uh, the, examples an example, the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This sermon is preached as much to me as to anybody else in this room. Maybe in some ways more so. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is dead. My study, um, where I do most of my sermon prep, is on the second floor in our house. And I have to be reminded as I go through this, I preach the sermons to myself all week long before I come up here and preach them to you. I have to be reminded that faith without works is useless. This passage says, hey, Dana, faith without works is useless. But let me give you the good news. I don't want to leave you with the bad news. Let me give you the good news. Faith without works is dead, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith without works is dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And so we are able to say, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, as we consider these things, and even this concept of faith and works is, hard to understand. It's hard to put these things together. It's easy to fall off one end of the sort of balance beam, to rely on um, our faith without demonstrating it, or to try too hard to demonstrate our faith, to try and prove to ourselves or try to earn our salvation. But Father, we come to you as a people who have been given faith, a people that you have saved that when we were dead, you have saved us. And so even this morning, Lord, as we come to your table, we don't presume to come trusting in our own goodness or faith or righteousness, but in your great mercies. In fact, Lord, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but you are merciful and gracious, Lord. And so grant us, therefore, to so commemorate and celebrate this breaking of bread and the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith, 
that we may be united to him and he to us who with you and the Holy Spirit is worthy of eternal thanks and praise. And so, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.